absolutely exhausting. What is? The journey yesterday. I came back from Scotland yesterday. I left at noon. <laughs> High noon, as I called it at yeah. the time. So this is from Scotland, back yeah. down to Cambridge. Yeah. Ten hours oh, it took me. Linda, uh, 10 that's horrendous. Yeah. 10 o'clock at night. There were problems on the A66. Oh, that, that was the worst of it, really. But then they'd shut the A1 at Grantham. And you had to go through the town of Grantham in a long, sneaking chain of cars. <laughs> Luckily, in front of me, there was a car with a trailer in the back with canoes. So I just followed the canoes and hoped that they were, in fact, making their way back <laughs> to, to the A1. <laughs> that wasn't going to end up in a river somewhere with the canoes. And, yeah. you know, after lockdown, I think we've all been used to very empty roads, haven't we? Oh, yes. So suddenly yes. the roads are starting to fill up. I think because people can't go abroad, they're now filling up the roads by travelling within the UK, which is, of course, good for the local economies. It is good for local economies. Of course it is, but not, but for, not your, for us. Not for your sanity when yeah. you're actually trying to get anywhere. Yeah. But anyway, but you're back from I Scotland. I am back and I had yes. a good time. And, and I went to speak to a friend whom I hadn't seen since we were 14. It's about 10 years now. So... <laughs> So, yeah, it was, it was cool. I didn't know if I'd recognise her. So when I walked into the pub. <laughs> she probably felt the same about you, didn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Did she say, did she say? That is really interesting, actually, Linda, isn't it? That you haven't seen your friend. I don't, I'm not going to say how many years, but since oh, 40. 10. Okay, 10. A, okay. I'm settling on 10 years. I'm 24. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at? Nothing. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I won't say anything. So how was it? Yeah, it was great. We chatted all afternoon. We had lunch and we were sitting outside, actually, in Inverness. I didn't oh. know there was an outside in Inverness. It's that cold up there. But we were sitting outside and, and it was a beautiful, lovely day. You're now going to continue your oh, yes, conversation. Well, uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> I'm saying yes. She's probably going, oh, God, no. <laughs> oh, that is so nice. Chris has made you a very nice new console table. Oh, yes, yes. Now, that's mm -hmm. rather impressive. I he saw that on Facebook. It, he chucked it together in an hour from scaffold boards. Whew. Yes, he just chucked it together. He, Yeah, he has his moments, really, doesn't he? He does. I mean, that is yeah, absolutely clever. impressive that he's hmm. done that. And I'm getting some flowers, Linda. But are they for me? Well, some are for you. Oh, yeah. right. I know. Oh, just come back from the florist. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> Do I? You mean oh, they're not for me? Yeah, yeah. No, they are for you. Oh, they are? Yes. Well, not oh, both. One's no. for you. And one's for Mel. <laughs> yes, for the birthday tomorrow. Excellent. <laughs> I'll have those, please. Nice. You like those? Yes, right. please. Oh, okay, there we are. Susie's just nabbed the best. I've nabbed the best. I've nabbed the bare bunches. <laughs> that was very nice, wasn't it? That was a bit nice. Yes, yes it was. You. Yeah. Well, you've got your console table. I have. You're absolutely right. I can put as many flowers on that table as I want. Exactly. If only somebody would give me a bunch. Oh, yeah. My friend, my friend who I met yesterday, you've been going up to Scotland, so you don't mind coming out of lockdown now, do you? But my friend is a little bit apprehensive about coming out of lockdown. Oh, rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. Why rightly so? Well, because it means you've got to go out and meet people again. It's a pain in the neck. You've got to put makeup on That's and you've true. got to find some clothes that actually fit. Yes. What a nightmare. That is very true. A very true word. You're right. Is that why your friend's frightened to come out of lockdown? No, or? no. She, she's. I don't. I don't think she's put weight on. She doesn't look like she's put weight on. But I, I think she quite enjoyed being at home for once. And she used to do an Airbnb, and then suddenly she stopped because of of lockdown. So it made a few decisions. I think that's what's been so interesting about lockdown. It's it's made people make decisions. 
Yes, reappraise their yeah. lives. Yeah, mm. and I think she stopped doing her Airbnb and now she's doing another cottage industry uh, business, which is fantastic. So mm. so that was quite interesting, that she was very open we were with lots of friends last night saying... I'm really not sure about it. I know I'm going to be I'm going to be fine, but I'm I'm taking it step by step. And maybe that's a lot of people's sort of thoughts yeah, at the moment. I suppose you don't have to come out of lockdown any more than you want to. Well, that's that's a, a point to think about. But also, if you are asked and pressured to go to certain events because just say no, just say just say, that just is say you. No. Just say, say no. There's a song. It's me. <laughs> It's me to a T, actually. I constantly say no. Isn't that Snow Patrol, Just Say No? No, I think it was an anti-drug song. Oh, oh yeah. Yes, it was. Sorry. Yes, it was. Snow Patrol. It was Just Say Yes, actually. Oh, is it Just Say <laughs> You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. The last 40 years have made quite a difference, haven't they, in the way that women are perceived, treated. When you think back to 1980, it was very, very different. So it's been really interesting to hear two women in conversation about going to Cambridge University. 40 years apart. Yeah. And then, of course, we caught up with another interesting lady, Annabelle Williams. She is a world-renowned vocal coach to the stars. And Annabelle was vocal coach on Britain's Got Talent, The X Factor, and I Can See Your Voice. But first, let's eavesdrop on a conversation between Dr Georgia Kaufman and Paige Y. You're about to hear two women in conversation about their very different experiences at Cambridge University. Author Dr Georgia Kaufman was in the first intake of women at Queen's College in 1980. We had to sit exams, so we had something called seventh term entry. So after A-levels, people stayed in school. Well, those who could afford to stayed in school for a seventh term and then sat entry, which was, of course, a huge disadvantage to be from state schools who sat from fourth term against people who were staying in school for an extra term. So I think they got rid of that system. So it used to be exams. And then if you pass those exams, you'd be called for interview. But I think that probably was quite different for you. And well-known YouTuber Paige Y joined Jesus College in 2018. So yes. Yeah, so did you have your grades before you ended up applying yeah, so I had, to Cambridge? I had, I had my A-level grades. And in fact, the smart schools would, would have special um, Oxbridge classes. And I wasn't allowed to do it because I wasn't expected to get good grades. And then after your A-level grades came through, they decided whether you were allowed to stay in school for the seventh term or not, and they kindly let me stay on. And then the whole process of getting scholarships and exhibitions, that was awarded at university level, depending on the, the exam grades for the entrance exams. I mean, in some ways, it sounds nicer because nowadays you'll get your offer, but it will be conditional on you getting some grades. So people will be ecstatic that they've made it through the application process and they've made it through an interview and all the different admissions assessments they're introducing. And it'll come to it and they'll miss by one mark maybe in their exam the grade they need and the university can turn around and say, sorry, we don't want you. And then um, there's no interview? The interviews are just very early on. So you'll be so having your interviews a year before, over a year before you end up going. And no assessments, no tests, nothing? 
again, assessments are very early on. So either while you're interviewing back in the autumn before you'd end up going if you get an offer, or even while you're still at school, I think different exam centres now hold their own admissions assessments. So there is, there's a lot of hurdles now. I think each time you're thinking, oh gosh, am I, am I going to get through the next hurdle? But because it's so early on and they'll make the offers as well right at the start of the year in January, you won't sit your exams until six months after that. And if all goes wrong at that point, then it's bad luck. It sounds like that what they've done is they've systematised it because what would have happened is if you're going from a state school, you would have done the exams in the November of your second year in A-levels, mm. whereas the people from independent schools would have been doing it after A-levels. And so it was a huge disadvantage to the, the state school applicants who were doing it. Yeah. So by doing it this way, they've systematised it. So everyone's doing it before A-levels. It does so seem a lot more it fair. Seems, seems a lot fairer. But the interviews were what, what kind of the kind of the terrifying process or fun, depending on how you looked at it. <laughs> yeah, um, that definitely hasn't changed. I came out of my interviews as well thinking, gosh, I've blown that. And even when the academics are doing their best to put you at ease and it's just the thought when you've got so much riding on your application, I know that I was very invested in it at that point. So I was sitting outside shaking almost before going in. My daughter's of similar sort of age to you. I've got a 24-year-old and a 20-year-old. And one of the things that really struck me is that the whole process of university applications 40 years ago, that sounds like awful to say it, I had five interviews at five different universities, whereas now my girls weren't interviewed almost anywhere. Mm. So, that, so the whole Oxbridge interview process then becomes even more frightening because it's the only one you're having, whereas I had practice run-in sessions at other places. And it is quite nice to be able to apply for other places and not have to go through all those interviews. I'm not sure how you used to fit it in alongside all your schoolwork as well. well it was fun. Was it? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a nice way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. You go off and you get, get to chat to people. Good approach to a job interviews as well. Have fun. What I'm really curious about is what it's like now in terms of the male-female ratio. So at my college, in my cohort at least, it was almost 50-50 split. I think the males did have a slight majority. This was Jesus College. I did sciences, physics in particular, so I had most of my course mates uh, being boys. But I didn't really mind that, to be fair, and I didn't ever feel like I was separated from them in any way. It was, it was a nice balance, I think, and I imagine that was very different to how it used to be. The whole university was, I don't know what the percentage were, but women were very underrepresented. But there were still some single-sex female colleges, so Girton and Newnham were still, and Newhall was still all single-sex. And that was done to preserve the space for women to come in, and, and the colleges were going mixed. So I think Jesus had already been mixed for a few years when I, when I was there. While I was at Jesus, there was a 40-year anniversary exhibition for when they started admitting women. So um, that would have been what year, working back? 1979, I think it was. Yes, so, 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 it, was, so it was the year before Queen's. Yeah. Queen's went, went co in 1980. It wasn't until I went to that exhibition that I realised it was anywhere near as recent. I know that women had been at the university for longer, maybe at other colleges, but I felt quite shocked that at my own college it was only 40 years since they started admitting women. And even then it sounded like the trigger for it was because they didn't get enough applications from men. So they thought, oh, we better open up to the women too. Well, what what they realised, it was a roll on mushroom effect. So they realised that as colleges began to go co-head, and I can't remember what the order was, 
those colleges then became the most successful academically because right. the women the women who were being admitted were better because you had to be really <laughs> good to get in compared to the guys mm. who you know there, there were so many of them so the standard of the female applicants was higher but then also it became more competitive to get in for the blokes because they wanted to be in a co-ed college for obvious reasons mm. so what happened it was a kind of snowball effect when once one or two started going co-ed they all began to follow along because they wanted to improve their academic standing so mm. queens was never particularly academic but it jumped to the top of the table the year that the first lot of women went through. And so it, it was not done for egalitarian purposes. It was done because it made a, a educational sense to admit women. How many women were in your cohort um, compared to the men admitted? <laughs> um, we were called the 39 Steps, like the famous film. Right. There were 39 of us. There were approximately 350 men at the college. I think for about 10 of them it was fantastic because... It was almost like the guys decided, well, what we do is there are about 10 girls who are really, really attractive. We're all going to try and go out with them. Mm. And those girls got invited. To, those days, people got invited to Mabel's. And you'd sort of go into their rooms, there'd be about six or seven invitations to Mabel's on their, their fireplace. And then the other girls got ignored, and then the blokes just went out with secretaries and nurses. And so it was this sort oh, of differential. It was, it was, there was no sense of normalcy about it. It was a pretty... I mean, I'm painting it particularly bleakly, but it wasn't, it wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah, such a shame. And and did the college make any effort to integrate the women into they, college life? Yeah, it was hopeless. They they appointed one female fellow and they thought that did the trick. And mm. the idea of having 39 women and 350 men, it was just bonkers. They should have gone 50% women admission straight on. And then there were all kinds of crazy things like um, Stephen Fry was in his third year in college, the year I was in my first year. And there was a big debate as we were moving into the second year. So Queen's everyone lived in. The second year you had to share sets. Right. And they decided that you could only share sets with, with the same sex pairs. And it was a known fact that Stephen Fry was living with his boyfriend and that they continued living together in the third year as well as the second year. Mm-hmm. And that was allowed because in those days you couldn't talk about being gay very openly. Whereas mm. the idea that a, a, a male and a female couple might decide to live together was unacceptable. So there were oh, these gosh. kind of weird perversions going on. When you say sets, that your living arrangements? Yeah, so you used to have single rooms in the first and third year. In the second year, you, you shared a very big room and mm. then a tiny little bedroom attached to it. And there'd be two single beds. Well, I wouldn't even say single beds, they were half-size beds. And that was the standard practice of living in the second year at least in Queens, but in quite a lot of other colleges. And my daughter's boyfriend was in Queens and he shared a set in his second year and now it's just changed round. They just have one tiny bedroom, one big bedroom and they swap round. But the kind of the sets are still there. Accommodation actually was lovely at Jesus College. I had an ensuite in a couple of my years and they weren't shared rooms, they were all single rooms, but for me I loved it because I was living just down the hallway from some good friends of mine and it was revolutionary coming from home where I was living with my older parents to suddenly having my friends right on my doorstep. So I'm also curious about, so you're saying that you're still a minority doing physics but what about the faculty? How many of the faculty are now women? I am not sure about physics. I moved to astrophysics in my final year so in my cohort there was four girls out of 22 I think in the total in the cohort but I think the smallest amount of girls you ever came across was when you were in the maths department because maths often shared lectures with physics and astrophysics and I could sit in a lecture there and be in a room of 
over 100 people and count on one hand the number of girls in the room. And it was mostly male lecturers. So I think there's still just a lot more interest of men in science than there is women. And whether that's lack of encouragement or women feeling like they'd rather do subjects where they already see representation or if they're just not interested, I'm not sure. Did you ever feel that this was a subject that you couldn't do because you're a woman? Or did you have to overcome anything special internally? For me, I was just interested in it and I didn't really mind that other women weren't doing it. But I think I would have liked to have had more course mates who were female. I think you can relate to them more. You know, sometimes you would see a bit of lad culture going on around you and maybe not integrate with your course mates so well when there's not as many females around. But in general, I made some really good friends on my course, um, male and female. So I really did have a very lucky experience. I'm guessing in your day, you didn't have college families or anything like that. That was (laughs) what they've come up with these days to integrate us into college. No, we didn't. We didn't. Paige, tell us about the proposals where is a house mother and father sometimes propose to each other. I've seen big signs up saying, will you marry me? Yeah, no, everyone went all out with the proposals. One of my friends proposed on a punt, actually, while we are out on a punting trip. I got proposed to with a bag of Haribo rings, I think. (laughs) It's something that everyone throws themselves into and people outside Cambridge just don't understand and think it's very weird. So it's not signed by the college. You have to choose your spouse. Yes, you have freedom to choose your college spouse. (laughs) You can have more than one college spouse as well if you like. There are no rules. (laughs) You get assigned college children, which is the nice part. Because so the, you get the assignation for... of children, but not not the spouse. That's yes, so yes, weird. that's correct. <laughs> and, and, it was, and it do, was nice, though. And do people choose their, so, their co-parent along the lines of suitable co-parents or someone they, they want to ask out on a date or something? It's, no, so normally you won't date your, your college spouse. That's normally frowned upon and people say, don't do it, because if all goes wrong with your dating life, then you're still bound to them with this college marriage. So it's not a good idea. In general, they say don't marry someone from your subject because if you have different subjects, you can have a bigger variety of college children who will do different subjects and you'll have more wisdom to share with them when they arrive. (laughs) It is is lovely. It's a way of um, getting to know people across years, I think, and Mm. networking in college. So when you were presented with your Haribo rings... I suppose you have to say yes. I felt too awkward to say no, so <laughs> I did. I did. I did accept. I, I actually, I got two college proposals in the end, so I, I felt too bad to say no. So I ended up with two college husbands, and, t- and therefore a, a, a bevy of children. Yes, yes, we had <laughs> we had lots of different children. <laughs> and do the families extend to the next generation? So when you're in your third year, and your children become college parents, are you then college grandparents? It depends how far you want to take it, really. Some people will get more into it than others. There is one particular quite well-known college family at Jesus College who have a family photo every year, and they send out a postcard in everyone's pigeonholes as well. So it started off with just the four of them. But as you got more and more generations, suddenly it was half the college appearing in this huge family photograph, which was very funny. And I did did meet my college grandchildren, so I did recognise them as my grandchildren feel a bit bad really when you graduate and you can't look out for them anymore around college.
year before I went up, but the college mourning the end of its single sex regime had a stag night. Um, so this is before your college families page, but they still <laughs> had a stag night. From what I understand, they had a huge meal, like a formal dinner in, in, the, in the new hall, and they got strippograms in and all sorts of stuff went on. I mean, it just sounded absolutely foul. And some people stood outside and protesting. Some people went in and some just ignored the whole thing. And people t- talked about it quite a lot when, my, when I first got to, to the college. And it, again, it was a bit of a smack in the face because you realised the college had gone into mourning before you women had arrived. It gave a very mixed message. <laughs> I mean, when, you, when we found out what sort of stuff had been going on, it, just, it, it wasn't very comfortable. That is shocking. <laughs> very yeah. shocking. I mean, I can remember some details which I won't share, but it just it just sounded very, very unsavoury, to say the least. Mm. Um, just a kind of drunken party. It's, you just kind of think all these guys who got in who were there, they were all bright and they weren't Neanderthals. And what were they doing there? On the plus side, there were some guys who were outside protesting the whole way through, which is yeah. kind of, that's nice to know as well. OK, so what, what was Freshers Week like for you? I mean, it was very short, actually. I don't think it's quite as wild as Freshers' Week at other universities, and I'm sure it's been like that way for a while. But I definitely had a lot of social events put on, barbecues to go to, nights in the bar, all mixed in with lectures that they were, of course, putting on in Freshers' Week too, because it's Cambridge. No, it was a fun time, and I managed to meet a lot of people across college in that time too. Did did they put on Freshers' Week activities in 1980? Yeah, there was a sort of societies fair which you went along to so you could decide which to join. Whatever it was was your interest, you'd go along to their... They all had one little drinks party or coffee party or biscuit party, whatever. So it was all fairly low-key. But I did realise halfway through Freshers Week I'd been drunk about 50% of the time and I just stopped drinking. Oh, no. (laughs) I just thought... It it was such a wake-up call to how the social life in Cambridge was very, very booze-orientated. Yeah. I just thought that was not for me. And then the kind of once you're in college, you sort of you could see all these drunken hordes of men running around on you know whatever night after a game, and that was quite a hostile environment. I don't know if it's still like that, but you know if the rugby club would go on a boozer after a game, and it was a very male boozy dominated environment. My suspicion is that the women drink just as much as the men now, and that's as how it's equalised. But I might be wrong. Yeah, there there are definitely some drinking societies still at the university, which are quite controversial, male and female drinking societies, actually, which I personally did not want to be involved with. But I can imagine that being very intimidating, especially if it's all just the men running around. No, no, I'm not talking about drinking. I'm talking about the rugby club. Each college rugby club would would literally hit hit the college bar and they would just go on the rampage afterwards. It's a shame because it doesn't really encourage you to join societies, does it? No, I mean, well, I kind of joined Amnesty International Society and that was lots of peanut butter and coffee. Mm. (laughs) Oh, lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Did you go to regular formals or anything? Formal dinners? I don't think Queen's had them in the same way because I can remember going to other colleges and sort of having them, but I can't remember Queen's having them or I just never, ever went to them. I think they must have been monthly or something rather than every day. Whereas I had friends at Keys who every day there was an informal or formal. Interesting because they were such a huge part of my experience, I think. I, I wasn't going every day. I did, I did eat in the college hall, but it was the cafeteria more that I went to. 
but they were great. I got addicted, I think, going, getting dressed up in my gown and going along and the gong being sounded and everyone standing up reading Latin Grace. And no, they were definitely an exciting yeah. experience. I, I, how often did Jesus have them? Were they weekly, monthly, daily? Jesus held them five days a week. So yeah. there was, it was nice because there wasn't ever a rush to get tickets. But I know some places like King's College, it was like getting festival tickets, trying to get a ticket to their formal. They were so highly sought after and held so infrequently. I think it was more like Jesus. And as much as I think most colleges had them all the time. And so mm. it was just a question when you went to go and have supper with someone, you had to work out whether you're going to formal or informal. They yeah. tended to invite you for formal, but it wasn't difficult to get tickets. And I can't remember Queen's doing it as much. We just had this huge new dining hall built a couple of years before, and maybe they'd just given up doing them, except for special occasions. So I, I can yeah. remember doing it two or three times. I went to a formal while I was at Cambridge at Queen's, and it was very nice, actually. I, I That's high so in my did. list of best so college did. formals. Did you have your own kitchen facilities, or did you always go to the cafeteria at Queen's? There were no kitchen facilities. Gosh. None. And most staircases, you had shared showers and bathrooms either at the top of the stairs or the bottom of the stairs. Mm. So very few places were en suite. And that was another thing they didn't do when they kind of, when we went co-ed, they didn't think that through at all. Eight o'clock on a, in the morning, whatever time you got up, you used to be traipsing up another stairs in your town. Lord knows who you bumped into. Oh, no. Do they separate out the, the women's no, accommodation no, from the men's no, or not at all? No, it was completely integrated, but without any thinking through on it. It's encouraging at the moment to see more female masters of colleges. You know, Jesus College has a lovely new female master who got appointed recently. That's, again, it's a nice role model to have around college. So I have another question then. This is, when I was at Cambridge, there was a real difference between town and gown. And animosity in, so, in some respects between the student body and the, and the town and I'm wondering whether that still exists or whether it's disappeared or whether the university has actively worked on trying to integrate itself more with the town. Amongst the students you always hear the words townies and gownies and I definitely didn't feel like the students mixed too much with people of the town. I did have a friend actually who lived in Cambridge as well so she kind of saw both sides of it but I mean, in general, I found Cambridge a lovely place to live and I felt like the people of the town were very accepting of students, but I'm sure that with so many students overrunning the town, it can get a little bit frustrating at times. Mm. But that, there was definitely that separation. And even with, there's Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge too, and I didn't feel that students of University of Cambridge mixed much with Anglia Ruskin students either. So there was that separation. I suppose the thing about the collegiate system is you're also insulated i mean so so much of my life went on in within college walls we didn't actually yes. go out very much into the town it is it's like a bubble i think everyone calls it the cambridge bubble and it definitely is that you're also focused on your own societies and the inner academic workings of the university I'm technically not a rower, I'm a cox. I, ah. I'm quite small, so I don't have the, the strength to, to row or the stamina. Although I did, uh, I did want to learn. Lightweight crews exist. That's true, that's true. I think I made excuses for myself because the thought of exercising very early in the morning was <laughs> not appealing. I didn't have the motivation for it, but I loved rowing. It was 
one of the best things I did while I was at Cambridge and I met so many people in my college and there was that real team spirit and the rowing races were so fun. I'm sure you had bumps in oh, your day course, as well. Yeah, yeah. They've been going around for quite a few decades before us. Were you coxing men's or women's, fours or eights or everything? I did a bit of everything. I, I moved between the years and, yeah, I got, got some variety there. So I think that's the beauty of being a cox. You can be in men's and women's crews. Well, I, I just um, love the idea of a small female coxing and shouting out eight great brutes and telling them what to do. I think it's just such a fantastic image. <laughs> you do feel very powerful. It's amazing yeah. when you when you say something and you're like, oh gosh, all eight of these people are doing exactly what I say. Uh, what position did you row in? I sort of alternated between um, six and five. So I did bow and stroke side. I was in the engine room, as they used to call it. I don't know what they still called it. And then I carried on rowing for a few years afterwards. But there, there was something absolutely magnificent about being able to row along the cam in the morning mm. and in that quiet. And I felt very, very privileged being in Cambridge. Yes, definitely. I still miss it. Can you imagine being on the river now? Just sort of an was... evening like today and just sort of floating along on the water and through the meadows. Definitely summer without a doubt is the nicest time to be out on the river in Cambridge. You've been listening to author Dr Georgia Kaufman and well-known YouTuber Paige Y talking about their experiences of being at Cambridge University for decades apart. You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. Annabelle Williams is one of the most in-demand vocal coaches in the UK. She's been vocal coach on The X Factor, Britain's Got Talent and I Can See Your Voice. Annabelle has tutored top celebrities such as Amy Winehouse, Katy Perry, Ellie Goulding, James Arthur, Little Mix. The list goes on and on. Annabelle not only coaches but is herself a performer with an amazing voice and she has received accolades from the likes of Jamie Callum and Sharon Osbourne. Not content with all of that, Annabelle has recently created an app called The Vocal Coach, which seeks to help anyone who wants to sing. Thank you for joining us today, Annabelle. Thank you very much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. That was Mm -hmm. lovely. It wasn't exactly difficult because you've done so much. (laughs) and You're doing so much, actually. So tell us a bit about yourself. How did you become a vocal coach? Well, quite by accident, to be honest with you, because, I mean, I was always pursuing my career as a singer. And I think a lot of singers and instrumentalists tend to do a bit of teaching on the side, you know, to make a bit of extra cash. But what happened was I'd been studying music since I was about 11. And then when I went to London to study music, um, when it came to the sort of theory side of things, I was uh, just a bit more maybe experienced than the other students in my class. And so I found myself sort of helping them and, you know, a lot of them were brand new to, say, theory and sight reading and reading music and that sort of thing. And I would just kind of help them along. And a couple of my friends were like, you're really good at this. It makes sense when you say it, you know, I don't understand some of the teachers sometimes. And I remember one of the girls, Sophia, saying, 
listen, what, can I pay you to help me with my theory? Because it's just, you know, it makes sense when you say it. And I was like, sure. I mean, I'm, you know, 18. Of course, I want to make a bit of extra cash. <laughs> yeah. Beer money and all that sort of thing. So so she paid me a five for an hour to teach her. And then this sort of like just started to spread from there, really. And, and I really, really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of coaching. But I never really sort of set out to be a coach. So as I say, that happened by accident. But my real training was in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which was an amazing training ground for young musicians. And I was fortunate enough to go there from the age of 15. And I actually was the singer for the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, or NIJO as it's called, from the age of 17 to the age of 23. And that was really better than any training I could have dreamed of because it was so, so hard and you were totally thrown in the deep end. And that is where I myself started a sort of Saturday morning workshop. I mean, I was in this situation where I was fortunate enough to be able to sing with a big band every single Saturday morning in rehearsals, you know, a 23-piece big band with trumpets and percussion and there was just loads of brilliant instruments. And it was just me singing along on my own every Saturday morning. I thought, this, this is such a brilliant opportunity because, you know, anyone can come, but people didn't know about it. So I decided to set up a little workshop for singers on a Saturday morning to come along and I would teach them the songs and then they would get a chance to sing with the big band. And um, so that's what I started doing when I was about 18. And then about a year later, it got up and running quite quickly, really. And that's when Amy Winehouse turned up when she was 16 and I was 19. And so from there onwards, really, that's where the kind of sort of, you know, for want of a better term, the celebrity vocal coach thing really sort of started and started to snowball from there. And, you know, you work with one person and people talk and, oh, you know, yeah. I saw this vocal coach and so on. And and it really sort of snowballed from there, really, totally out of my control. I was still plodding along trying to be a successful <laughs> singer and the vocal coaching just, you know, wouldn't leave me alone. It was just taking <laughs> off on its own little route. So I was like, oh, OK. This is what's happening. <laughs> That's incredible, though. That's quite a quite a good way to get into something, rather by plan and an accident. It's, totally, uh... <laughs> totally. There I am, working hard to try. Like, no, I'm a singer. I'm going to do the gigs, and it just happened anyway. And it was such a fortunate accident. I loved it so much, and look, here I am now. That's what I do. So, um, yeah, well, I love it. So, Annabelle, you mentioned, obviously, one of the most wonderful, famous singers of all time, Amy Winehouse. Mm -hmm. When you are approached to do your vocal coaching, do you get goose pimples when you find a singer that you know is going to be amazing? Do you see it straight away? Yeah, I think you do, definitely. And I remember that feeling with Amy because, you know, of course, she was 16 at the time and not known at all. Um, nobody knew what was what was around the corner for her and you know she would just come along she was just another girl at the time who just came along but she would kind of sit there and not really give too much away in that I didn't really know how much she was listening to me <laughs> but then she would go out and sing with the big band once I'd taught her the song and that's when you sort of you know you see all the instrumentalists play their instruments but all kind of looking at each other at the same time like <laughs> the eyes just going from left to right like wow yeah. who yeah. is this oh and fantastic. i think it's such it's such a brilliant brilliant moment and i think we all in the room knew something special was happening which is just i mean it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because yeah. it was just such an amazing moment and yeah for sure i'm very very lucky when i work with artists clients people just starting out people already established when you first hear them you know and it's, it's all about tone you know i love the different tones of people's voices and that's what makes them unique and, and it's my job to kind of 
not teach everyone the same way. So every single lesson I do with anybody is always different because if I taught everybody the same way, they'd all sound the same. So I really like to work with them on their Mm. own unique sound and help them with their own sound, you know. On the same token, Annabelle, do you find there are clients that you feel at the beginning there's not a lot of hope, but yet you're really surprised and you work at it and they become rather good? Yeah, and, and it's something like I always say to the kind of the naturally gifted ones, because you when you get somebody who's naturally just a brilliant, brilliant singer or who can just do all the riffs and all the runs and has that agility compared to somebody that wants to be able to do that and hasn't got that natural ability. I always say to the naturally good ones like that, just be careful because don't just sit back and rely on your own natural talent because what happens is the ones who don't have your natural talent work their butts off and then they overtake, end up overtaking you. It's really interesting for me to kind of see. I can think of a guy that I used to teach about 15 years ago back in vocal tech which is now um, BIM in Fulham and he was one of these bless his heart not naturally just naturally wasn't there but nobody wanted it more than him and he did a diploma then a three-year degree and then the master's and by the end well he showed everyone how it was done I mean he really really worked his socks off and I couldn't believe the difference and I love stuff like that because it's like yeah do you know what if you put your mind to it you can really make massive, massive changes. And yeah, it's important for the ones who have the natural talent, who could possibly be a little bit on the lazy side as a result, to kind of see this happening, you know? Yeah. You were a young carer during your childhood and you say you were painfully shy. How did you get over that? Oh, I was was painfully shy. Well, I'll tell you how I got over it. I was forced to be the lead in the school play when I was 15. Ah. I was a young carer, yeah. My mum had grandma epilepsy from the age of 13. It was just the two of us. And so I was classed as a young carer. I feel like I had to grow up overnight um, when that happened when I was 11. And at school, I was just painfully, painfully shy, even though I wanted to be a singer. And I just, I mean, when I was on the stage, it was completely different. You know, it was just, that's when I had my confidence. But I couldn't even speak on stage. I mean, I couldn't introduce a song or anything. All I could do was sing. So when I was about 15, my best friend at the time, Rachel, wanted to audition for the school play, which was Little Shop of Horrors. And she wanted to be one of the three Ronettes, the daddy, oh, yeah. daddy, those girls. And... Um, you know, didn't want to go and audition on her own. Oh, please come with me, Annabelle, please come with me. I was like, sure, I'll come with you. And they get there and they go, if you're here, you're auditioning. And I'm like, bye, I'm off. <laughs> and um, so she's like, no, no, please stay with me, please stay with me. I'm like, absolutely, There's, I'm literally going right now, this is not happening. So the drama teacher said to me, Annabelle, why don't you just stay on it? Anyway, they talked me into it. I was mortified. And long story short, they lift the casting up the next day on the school notice board and there it was, Audrey, Annabelle Williams. And I was like, no there's definitely been a mistake here and I remember I burst into tears and I ran to the drama teacher and I begged her and I said you can't make me do please don't make me do I can't do it I literally can't do it I cannot do it and she said to me you can do it you were brilliant and none of us knew you could sing like this why don't we know that you can sing and I was like please anyway I did it and it was just it was the best thing that could have happened to me you know I became popular overnight and everyone suddenly knew who I was and from that the school band leader basically said you know god we didn't know you could sing who are you Um, would you like to join the school jazz band I'd like to take you to a national big band called the National Youth Jazz Orchestra wow and that was it wow that was it that was the that was the link so it changed my life did you know you could sing before you did that well I felt like 
my, my mum was a singer and my dad was a trumpet player. Funny enough, I'm a singer and I'm married to a trumpet player. Um, and <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I just loved singing. I don't know that I, I think I always thought I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to be amazing one day. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to, I just always knew that when I grew up, I'd be able to sing. And I thought I'm not there yet. It was always this sort of in the future type of thing. I never, never in a million years thought at that moment that I could sing. Yeah, I mean, I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder and Ella Fitzgerald, and that was always those that sort of music was always played in my household. So I was always singing, but I always thought for me it was in the future I'll be able to sing. So to get, get that recognition at fifteen was bonkers. I had no idea. Annabelle, what strikes me there, I, I've always thought of two teachers when I was growing up that really helped me along the way because I was painfully yeah. shy too and yeah. I still remember them to this day what oh, they yeah. did for me so so I'm, I'm guessing that you've got some very motivational or inspirational teachers in your past that have helped you through absolutely. your life mm. absolutely so that guy who ran the jazz band is one of the most amazing guys he's, a, he's in his 80s now his name's Bob Power so he's based in St Albans. So if you're listening, Bob, he knows and you'll be terribly <laughs> embarrassed. He's done so much for young musicians over decades and decades. He's still going now. He's still running big bands for young people in St Albans and sort of Hertfordshire area where I'm from. So he is just magnificent. And bless him, he comes to my Pizza Express jazz gigs and Ronnie Scott's gigs and things like that. So um, he's he's wonderful. I mean, he really, really did make such a difference. And as I, as I say, the link there between school and the and Nijo, the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, that was down to him. Well, and also the teacher at the school who said, you're yeah, going to be the teacher. lead singer. Yeah, yeah, for me, that was the, a, p- a pinnacle moment dra- for you. Yeah, the drama teacher, Philippa Church, absolutely, who cast me. And she actually said, she wrote something on my um, my leaving book which I didn't understand at the time and I, and I and I look back now and I completely get it but what she wrote was I hope your policy of dizziness gets you far continues to work for you oh that's <laughs> great I remember going round to people with my leaving book going does anyone else not understand this I've not got a clue what she means I didn't understand it which was ironic uh, and sort of perfect, really. And then years later, I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I think I get it. <laughs> You've you worked on, on big TV shows like Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor and I Can See Your mm. Voice. How much pressure is involved in working with contestants on these shows? Oh, my gosh. I'll be honest with you, so much pressure. And, and I mean, it's now I'm sort of nine, ten years down the line of doing these shows it's a very different experience now and I don't really know how I did it when I first started because working in live TV as a vocal coach is so, so different as working as a vocal coach in any other environment, really. Um, I'd obviously been vocal coaching for years up until that point, but when you get working on live TV, it's a completely different ball game. but it is brilliant. It is so exciting. You know, quite often you've got minutes, seconds sometimes to produce instant results, to get people calmed down, to get them on stage. And especially shows like that, you know, you've got sort of people that have, often these people have never been on stage before, or never mm. held a microphone before. And people at home watching can forget that because it all looks so polished and so fabulous and sparkly. But yeah. actually, these are real people with day jobs and insecurity issues and, and shyness and all that sort of thing. And it's it's crazy what these people achieve. So there is loads and loads of pressure. And no matter how much you prepare somebody for that, 
those few minutes before they go on are really, really crucial. I'm with them the whole time. We're breathing. I'm holding their hands. They're surrounded by hair, makeup, stylists. They're getting hair sprayed and lip gloss applied and all that sort of thing. But I'm just there with them going, listen to me. I'm here with you. It's all fine. Let's breathe. Let's not ruin it now at the last stage. That sort of thing. So it's really high pressure. So I have to keep them really, really calm. And the mantra that you have, it's okay to not be okay. Is that something you've learned to to sort of relate to your clients and obviously the contestants on these shows? Absolutely. And it's something, you know, we all kind of learn how to cope with things as we get older. And I just wish... I'd known it when I was younger because my husband and I had an old jazz teacher that said, used to say to us, don't sweat the small stuff. And it's so, so true. And when you are in environments where you just think the world's ending and this is not happening, you're stressing over things, that sort of phrase, it's okay. It's okay if I'm not okay. It's okay mm. not to be okay. It's just so, so important. And I think now more than ever with the way that the world is and the way people are coping with their mental health and anxiety I mean everybody's is on the on the increase and everybody's suffered and everybody's really going through it in various levels and to various degrees I think just knowing that it's all right and that everyone else is in the same boat is really important and just you know trying not to fight it some of some of the time is the best way to deal with it Mm, and with that in mind you've developed a nap haven't you the vocal coach what made you even think of doing that Annabelle (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I mean god what else are you going to do in lockdown make a nap good answer (laughs) well yeah I mean this is something that has been a sort of an idea of mine for about five years now five six years I had this idea years ago because without even realising it, it wasn't until somebody pointed out to me that I had my own methodology and I thought, have I? You know, I've sort of developed my own method over the years and I think a lot of it stems from working on X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and TV shows like that whereby I've just got to do whatever it takes to get results. I've got to do whatever it takes and it's my job to have 10, 20 different ways of communicating the same piece of information and everybody's different and sometimes you've got seconds to do that. And I think probably that is a strength of mine in that I teach how I wish I'd been taught and I I teach certain techniques and ways I explain them in the way that I wish I'd been explained them in the first place, which is actually just to simplify things. I invented these exercises, but every single time I did them with anybody that had been trained previously, they'd go, well, I've never been taught it like this before. I've never been explained like this before. This is brilliant. This works. I was like, oh, you know, okay, great. And this started to happen a lot more. But my exercises that I developed and invented were, at the the time, just me kind of doing them a cappella or with a piano. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I put them to, like, funky backing tracks and made them like a Bruno Mars album or a Justin Timberlake album or something like that? So I enlisted the help of a brilliant producer friend of mine, Nate Williams, who's an amazing artist in his own right. And we got cracking, and he's made backing tracks for me for 28 of my exercises. And then I thought about this app I do, and I thought, there's nothing like this out there. And I started to do a bit of research and basically downloaded every sort of singing app there is. And I was really shocked to find there's nothing out there that's just a simple app that has, you know, tips on vocal health and exercises and warm-ups and daily routines and what to drink and what to eat and what not to eat and all that sort of stuff. And it's all in there because I've just basically put everything that I've learned over the last 25 years in this app. It's a really interesting concept, actually, Annabelle, because I can think of loads of people. Like I remember Craig David, he was from Portsmouth and he used to do lots of singing in his bedroom. Um, But to have an app that literally helps you, gives you a chance to go somewhere, is incredible. And you're right, why hasn't this been done before? 
It's nuts, isn't it? It's totally yeah. because why hasn't it been done before? You know, every app that I've downloaded is, you know, there's nothing really that's just got a list of really good exercises that work. And I was really, really surprised to find it. So I thought, right, I'm doing it. And I think because it's been made by a singer, by me, who is a singer, I understand and have gone through everything that the people who are using this app have gone through because I've been a jobbing, working singer all my life. So I know what it's like when you lose your voice. I know what it's like when you're nervous. I know what it's like when you've got to pick out harmonies. I know what it's like when you've got to do ad-libs, you know. So all the things that I know singers are crying out for help with, I've been able to put into this app. And I wanted to make it for different types of audiences. It, it is for existing singers to be able to use, you know, whether you're an artist on tour or a backing singer or, or a vocal coach yourself or a singer in the, on a cruise ship or or doing a wedding or whatever type of singer you are, there is warm-ups for you to get you set up for your gigs and your functions and your concerts. But there's also exercises if you are just starting out. Like you say, if you're a bedroom singer and you, and you don't really know where to start, you know, all the exercises are kind of marked easy, medium and hard. So if you're just starting out, you just go to all the easy ones and then each exercise has a little video of me explaining exactly how I want you to do the exercise, exactly how to do it safely and effectively. Mm. That sounds absolutely amazing, actually. And you're right, I have no idea why no one's done this before. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds good. But to have someone, you know, frankly, of your calibre, to have access Aww. to that information just absolutely. sounds absolutely Well, I think that's amazing. it. The idea is you've sort of got me there with you in an yeah. app you know yeah so yeah I'm, I'm very very happy with it and we're right in the middle of um, the second phase at the moment actually so I wrote 18 exercises and videos last year when it launched and we've just I've just had the first year of it and now I've just written 10 more exercises which I'll be releasing in about three weeks yeah when we go to subscription which will be exciting excellent and you also perform with your own band don't you yeah, I do. I mean, when I get the opportunity, it's 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 not as much as I would like because it's just so, so busy with the vocal coaching and the TV shows and stuff. But I do have my own band. I've been performing at Ronnie Scott's since I was 17 and I perform regularly at Pizza Express Jazz Club in Dean Street. I'm kind of trying to envisage you, Annabelle, kind of thinking, oh, I'm off to Ronnie Scott's to sing again. You know, <laughs> most, people, most people would give their eye teeth, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's oh, my right. God. Ronnie's is like my second home. It's yeah. so funny oh. how these places just become, sort of, you know, to some people it's like, I mean, it is like Ronnie's got some of the biggest, best jazz clubs in the world. But uh, yeah, for, for us lot, it's our second home. It's our hangout. You know, it's where we get a drink after hours. <laughs> and about looking back now, when you, when you, you know, we've been talking about how painfully shy you were and how you were pushed by your teacher and how much you have achieved and you'll continue to achieve. Would you look back at yourself, at your younger self now? What would you say to yourself and to other young people that are thinking about going into singing or being a vocal coach and who are painfully shy yeah I mean it's it's a brilliant question because I just god I wish I'd known how it was going to go because you just are so terrified when you're younger if anyone who's listening or anyone listening who has kids who are painfully shy like honestly singing is like therapy so if you can get into something that gives you confidence whether it's a sport or singing or dancing or acting just things like that really do get you out of your shell because if you find something that you're good at, well, even if you're not good at it, just something that you love, doesn't matter mm. if you're good or not, just do something that you love. 
it will give you confidence and yeah. I think that's and, and throwing yourself in a deep end is so so important and so good you've got nothing to lose no one's going to die just do it and just go for it you know it's only music we're not paramedics we're not saving lives here we're singing it's supposed to be joyous it's supposed to be wonderful and it yeah. is absolutely like therapy and you ask any singer they will tell you this this is my therapy this is how I get through things and you know singer songwriters that's their vice that's how they tell their story that's how they get it get the get the pain out and get it down is by by writing about it so whenever anybody I coach or work with is going through a difficult time first thing I say is get it down write it down you know turn yeah. this into the most beautiful song that was ever written turn it into your best ever song get all the feelings out because that's when you're going to be writing at your best you know it worked pretty well for Adele so yes <laughs> just, just a bit just a so bit if you've you got a broken heart don't worry write a song about it well, yes <laughs> Another divorce, another fortune. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Oh. Annabelle Williams, I've absolutely loved talking to you. Today. Oh, I've loved talking to you. That's yeah, been brilliant. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on our programme. And um, I would recommend any singers out there or would be singers, you go in search of the Vocal Coach app. Where can you get it, Annabelle? Is it on all platforms? So- yeah, it's on all platforms, Android and iOS. And yeah, it's just called The Vocal Coach. It's a little gold and white symbol. You'll find it there. Thank you very much, Annabelle. It has been an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you. You are very inspirational. You really oh, are. Yeah. Really Thank nice. you so, so much for having me. Really, really appreciate it and love talking to you. Now, after listening to Annabelle Williams, Linda, has it inspired you to sort out your vocal cords <laughs> well I'm a terrible singer so I think any help I can get I know they say that everybody can sing I don't think that's true oh well I yeah. think you've my got my tone is all wrong well uh, you think that that's okay you might be a double bass though <laughs> no I'm not I can't go very low I'm a high singer but no I know no it's not very good it doesn't sound very good people roll their eyes anyway it was really good wasn't it being able to catch excellent. up with these yes. yeah absolutely yeah and also of course we had Dr Georgia Kaufman and Paige Y who were talking about their take on attending Cambridge University 40 years apart Mm. and the differences quite astounding I mean 40 years it sounds a long time I suppose when you say it but when you say it was 1980 that's not all that long ago from my point of view and yet their experiences completely different and the way that things have changed I had a feeling that um, that Georgia Kaufman would be quite happy to go to Cambridge now (laughs) I think you're absolutely right I don't think that Paige would want to go back to university in the 80s maybe I don't think she would she was really surprised as well the way it was yeah (laughs) well you can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWavesRadio and you can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. And if you can think of a woman that we should be talking to, we'd be delighted to hear from you. See you next time. Music.